0: They say that you wake up every morning a little bit taller uh, than when you went to bed, just because you're laid out. And I've gained four inches since last night. It wasn't the Hampton Inn. It's the box I'm standing on, four inches. So, thank you for that. Uh, We're going to consider this morning the doctrine of God's eternality. And yesterday, when we were considering his infinity and perfection. I came at it more from a thematic perspective and somewhat uh, conceptually heavy uh, perspective, and I want to take a slightly different tack this morning with uh, God's eternality and just exposit the doctrine within a certain context, and that being Psalm 90, many of the words of which we've just sung in singing that great hymn of Isaac Watts. And so I want to consider that God is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. And I want to situate that doctrine within the entirety of the psalm uh, of Moses that we have. And so as Scott has prayed for the Spirit's illumination, I'll read the word for us, Psalm 90, and then we'll consider uh, the doctrine that we're to take away from this text. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world... Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. Or as a watch in the night, you have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, and soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? And your fury according to the fear that is due you. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be, and be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. James 4.14 says you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. A sobering reminder of the brevity of life. And though we often marvel at how quickly time flies... Nevertheless, it is the case that we tend to live as if we had all the time in the world. In fact, even the perception of time is strange in our own experience. This talk about God being timeless and you being in time may even feel like it's dragging on and on. That's not a, that's not the, I'm not promising a very long message, but just while you're in it, it feels like it's going on forever. But by the time you come to lunch, this will just be a memory. It felt so long, but... It was, after all, so short. (laughs) Though life is fleeting, Job says, few of days and full of trouble, it is not for that reason unconcerned with eternity. You are of time, but you need to give a thought to eternity. If you're going to... Number your days, you need to have a benchmark against which to make a real assessment of your days, and that benchmark is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. Ecclesiastes 3:11 says that God sets eternity in the heart of every man. man finds his true good and his abiding home, abiding home in something other than this short-lived stint on earth. Jesus instructs us to store up. For yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. In Psalm 90, we have the words of Moses, his only psalm in the Psalter, certainly not the only song Moses wrote. You can think of Exodus 15, perhaps another great song of Moses. Uh, But this song of Moses gives counsel to people who are rootless and ruined. I submit to you that While this is good counsel for the rootless and ruined in his time, it's also good counsel for the rootless and the ruined in our time. Those who feel that their lives are breaking down and under a heavy hand of wrath and who feel that they don't really have a home or a place in this world, and let me just say, and if you don't feel that way, you should. This is a psalm for you. The middle portion of the psalm, and we'll consider it in its entirety, the middle portion uh, is very severe, and it is designed to heal those who will take it to heart. There's There's some tough sledding through the middle of this psalm. Death and judgment, though, are neither the first word nor the last word in this psalm of Moses. Rather, Moses begins by directing our attention toward the home that endures, namely God himself, Then he considers how far humanity has fallen from that eternal dwelling, and he shows us what real spiritual homelessness looks like. A bleak picture indeed. Finally, at the end of the psalm, he lights the way back home to God through a series of hopeful petitions. And I want us to see that each of these petitions ultimately finds its definitive answer in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the eternal one, Who took our nature and our time to himself, not by giving up his eternality, but by assuming our temporality in the fullness of time. The one who is not of time came to bring the sons of time to a better future. To a better future. I want to just take this in four parts as we move through it. An eternal dwelling, the first couple of verses. And we'll spend a good bit of time here just establishing God's eternality and the meaning of it. Then, secondly, a brief journey, verses 3 to 6. Thirdly, a hard journey, verses 7 through 11. And then finally, the way back home, verses 12 through 17. So let's begin first by considering an eternal dwelling, verses 1 and 2. Moses begins with a prayer to God, which, in which believers are reminded of the, of the fact that they are sojourners and pilgrims upon the earth. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. No doubt this is a strange way to speak about God. God's a someone, not a somewhere. Why call him a dwelling place or a a, a refuge? Um, And again, I think the language is being used somewhat metaphorically, analogically. When God is called a rock, he's not a dense piece of sedimentary material. You knew that already. But like a rock provides some kind of stability, God provides stability. Like a refuge or a dwelling place provides protection and peace, God is our protection and God is our peace. And like we say sometimes, maybe you even have this stitch somewhere, home is where your heart is and we're all trying to get home. There is something about God that actually realizes that ambition in a way infinitely more pro- profound than any other home. The words would have rung especially true for the faithful in Moses' time, as neither they nor their forebears had ever possessed a land of their own. Moses was born in a land not his own and raised by Pharaoh's daughter in a house not even of his own people. Later, he. Sojourns in the Sinai Peninsula and shepherds sheep for his father-in-law Jethro. Then he returns to the land, not really his own home, to bring out his people who really were sojourners in a strange land. And he brings them on a journey uh, through a wilderness in which, because of his own sin, Moses himself never actually enters the land of rest in the land of Canaan. But you might think to yourself, well, they were looking for a homeland. This is a, this is a rootless people. This is a people born expatriates. If that's a thing, their native land isn't really their native land. They're not its sons. They're not its daughters. They're a foreign people in a foreign land. And we might think to ourselves, well, then wouldn't their home be Canaan? It's interesting when God gives the promises, uh, when God gives the promise of a land to Abraham originally. And Abraham leaves Ur of the Chaldees and he goes out in faith looking for a new land and he settles in the land of Canaan, we're told that even there, Abraham himself did not perceive Canaan as his final home. In fact, in Hebrews 11, we read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called obeyed, going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. Then listen to what it says next. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. In fact, dwelling in tents is just the indicator that they were nomads, they were sojourners, they were just a passing through, as it were. When he got to Canaan, he wasn't home. When he got to Canaan, he was still a sojourner upon the earth. Now Canaan was a blessed land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Canaan was designed in God's providence to be a special lookout place, so to speak. It, it provided, it furnished a vantage point by which Abraham could, as it were, gain a better a better perspective on the place he was really going, but Canaan wasn't really it. He goes and he gets to Canaan, and he's not home yet. In fact, we're told in verse 13 of, of Hebrews 11 that all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but which have seen them and welcome them from a distance. Canaan is a distant land from that to which Canaan is pointing, but it's a good vantage point. In fact, they confess that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, and then it makes clear that if they were seeking a country that was their own, if they meant the country from which they had come, he could have gone back to Ur of the Chaldees, but he doesn't. It says, for indeed, they desire a better country, a heavenly one, and then it says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. And you think to yourself, well, he wasn't really looking for God, his dwelling place. He was looking for heaven. But listen to these words in John's Apocalypse 21 22. John says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. To call God our dwelling place here and now is in a sense to experience a foretaste of heaven to experience permanence amidst impermanence. Moses is saying that God has been his dwelling place. He's not saying you will be my dwelling place one day. He's saying you have been our dwelling place through all generations, that the the eternal dwelling place is not just your future dwelling, but the God who is your future is also the God who is your present. The refuge that is to come is the refuge that is now. Verse 2 then enhances this emphasis upon God as our dwelling place, and it kind of drills down into the question, well then, what sort of dwelling place is God? In fact, you can imagine if you were to buy a home, you might pay to have a home inspector go and do an evaluation of the property. Is the roof in good shape? Are there big cracks in the floors? Are there leaks? Has there been a flood that wasn't reported Two years ago, we were buying a new home, and um, we had an offer in on the house, but then paid to have the inspector go and look at the house and upon inspection decided to withdraw our offer because the inspection turned out to show that this home was in fact much more worn and dilapidated than the pictures uh, might have indicated and the things that I could see with the naked eye. And so we do a kind of home inspection, a home evaluation, does it have a new roof, how's the plumbing, is the electrical all up to code and up to standard and what we're really asking is will this be a good home for me and the other question is how long is it going to last. In North America our homes are not comparatively old, there are places in the world where people dwell in houses much older than the ones we have here. For many years living in Philadelphia we see pre-revolutionary houses, that is to say literally British colonial houses that are still standing um, and still being lived in hundreds of years later Uh, and there are several of those sorts of places. If you cross the water over into Europe it gets much older right away. It is in the 12th century that the work begins of construction on the nave in Westminster Abbey. You could go there, very soon they're going to have a coronation in the nave of Westminster Abbey. A structure, the stability of which, the foundations of which were laid in the 12th century and it continues to stand. In fact, it was finished, the Westminster Abbey in its current form, by 1517. Martin Luther's 95 thesis in the NAVE at the Westminster Abbey were finished in the same year. You could go there now and go to an Evensong service in the NAVE at Westminster Abbey. These are old buildings. These have stood the test of time. They were made of sturdy stuff and of good construction. But then you could head farther south and it gets much older pretty quickly. You can go down to Florence and you can go to the Duomo at Florence. And it's a 15th century structure that's still being used. And you can even climb up to the dome on the top of it. You could go down a little further down to Rome and visit the Pantheon. The Pantheon is a domed building that's been standing for 2,000 years. For most of those years, it's been a Roman Catholic Church and is still being used. When I visited it, I had to wait outside for the Catholic Mass to end. That's how confident they are that that structure is going to endure. We have homes, some of which endure, some of which are made, but maybe for a century, they come and they go. So the question is, what kind of dwelling is God? How durable, so to speak, is God? If he's my dwelling, let's do a little inspection, if we may. And this is how the inspection turns out. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In fact, God isn't old. I know Daniel calls him the ancient of days, but not because he's old, but because he's to be revered above all days and the ancient ones are to be revered. And so scripture will use the language of ancient or old to describe God, not because he's old but because he's to be revered above what's old. If you're supposed to be in awe of what's old, when you stand at the Westminster Abbey or down at the Pantheon in Rome, you you marvel at these structures that still stand and there's a kind of, these have stood through millennia, some of these structures, and there's a kind of reverence and and an awe that we have as we stand before them. And when we even read reports of ancient Antioch now lying in ruins just in the last few weeks because of the earthquake, there's something in us that feels that something durable and lasting has been taken away from us, and we we revere the ancient things, the ancient ones and the old paths and the hoary head. These are the ones that we revere, and yet God is the one to be revered above all of them. How would you say it? The ancient of days. God is also the one who is and who does not pass away whose years are not like an ever-rolling stream. And in fact, years is just an accommodated accommodated way of speaking about God because his life isn't computed or measured out by years. God isn't counting his years and measuring them up. There isn't really a sum of them. We speak that way, but just by way of analogy, God is boundless. God is infinite. God is life itself. God isn't living out his life. God is his own life in himself. So when we compare him to the world, he says, before the mountains were born, when we come to human structures, we can find some old ones, but if you want to look at the things that really remain, the things that speak of durability, we look at the mountains, the ancient hills. And when we look at the ancient hills, we see those towering mounds of earth and rock that have, as it were, kept watch over the passage of years. J. Gresham Machen, who was something of an avid climber, has a whole essay entitled Mountains and Why We Love Them. And he speaks, uh, he, he, climbed, uh, he climbed the Matterhorn I think twice. Uh, I think he describes the, the Swiss and the French Alps as, as these almost centuries, centuries keeping guard over and watching over the affairs of men over millennia taking place down at the foot of the mountains in Europe And what stands and what stays are the mountains. And what comes and what goes are the empires of men. Men come, men go. Our structures go up, our structures go down. The hills remain. The hills are the things that are enduring. And he says, before the mountains were born or before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's not that God is older than the world. It's that the world came to be and God didn't. In other words, when I say that he's not older, I just mean that he's not chronologically passing moments. He just isn't that way. God is not of time. The way that it's said to us here from everlasting to everlasting is an interesting, almost ironic way of phrasing it. It almost makes it sound like From is a past state and to is a future state and then the present is sort of sandwiched in between the from and the to. You came from wherever you spent the night to this place and you are going to lunch uh, a little while after this session. Um, And in the meantime, here you are and this is your present. And it almost makes it sound like God is from way back when and to way out there. And yet it's interesting. Listen to what he says. You are from everlasting. So I want to make one quick observation about everlasting. Everlasting can't be a past state of being. Otherwise it wouldn't be, right, everlasting. Uh, Everlasting can't be a what used to be. That's not what it is. And then he says to everlasting, and this is what's interesting, the term from which, which is an unending term, and the term to which are in fact the identical term. This is, this is similar to the way scripture will speak about God as alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, from everlasting to everlasting. Endless fullness of being, not becoming. This is God. God is eternal because God is not passing moments. God is not checking the clock. God keeps time, but God isn't kept by time. God meets out and measures out time, but he's not measured by time. He makes time, but time does not run him. We'll talk more about this in just a moment. It's a deliberately ironical way of speaking, and it contrasts with our way of being. We are from then in the past, and two then in the future. And our now is a kind of, theologians call our now a a nux fluens, a flowing now, whereas most theologians will say that God is a nux stands. He's a standing now, not a flowing now. God's now is not a moment sandwiched in between his was and his will be. God just simply is. This is your dwelling place, not something that's coming and going, not something that's on the way to a future, not something that hearkens back to a past, but just the one who is, the I am. In Psalm 102, and I, I think uh, Dr. Sanders anticipated me on this, maybe we both cited Edward Lee last night, who hasn't been in print since 1662. I thought that was interesting that we both found somebody who was last in print in 1662. Um, So I I assure you, we weren't conferring together. But Psalm 102, for immortality and for eternity, uh, is an important text. And it parallels with some concerns in this text. Uh, Just a couple verses out of it as we build toward the end. The the psalmist says, uh, For my days have been consumed in smoke, just like a vapor. My days are just a puff of smoke here today, gone tomorrow. My heart has been smitten like grass and withered away. Right now in California where I flew from coming out here, all the hills are green. And and Fred and I both flew from the same area and we were joking the other day. it, It looks like Ireland right now. But there's no way that by middle of June it's going to look that way. The hills will be golden yet again. Golden is a flattering way uh, of saying brown. Uh, they will be golden yet again. Sprouting, growing, flourishing, gone. He says this of God, verse 12, Psalm 102. But you, O Yahweh, abide forever or sit enthroned forever. Your name to all generations. Names come, names go, soon forgotten, but not God. God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. He's not, as it were, on the merry-go-round with us, coming and going. He sits above the comings and the goings as Lord of them. Then a, a little down further, the psalmist prays in verse 23 this way. He says of God, he has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. It's an interesting He's effectively saying, don't let me die an untimely death. Don't let me die at the halfway mark is is probably close to what he's saying. Um, And then who does he appeal to? He doesn't go to his doctor. You can imagine, imagine you had a... A disease that was almost guaranteed to kill you and there was one man in the world who could effectively perform an operation that would save your life and let's say that you went and you scheduled the operation with that physician and this was the man who was fabulously successful he could perform the operation to save your life and you went and you went and said doc don't let me die and, doc, and the doctor says to you i'm going to do the best i can hang in there and the surgery is scheduled for monday afternoon And on Saturday, you get news that your doctor was on the golf course and died of a massive heart attack. The only guy on planet Earth that can perform the life-saving operations. And three months later, that's it. You're done. Because the guy who could have saved your life got carried away by the tide of time. An untimely death for you and for him, I suppose. So who does he appeal to? He appeals to God, and this is why he appeals to God. He appeals to God, don't let me be taken way in the midst of my days because... You're the one who isn't like this. God isn't going to meet his demise on Saturday on the golf course. God isn't going to flow away. God isn't going to break down. The steadiness of his hand doesn't grow shaky. His mind and his, his knowledge does not, as it were, fade away and become opaque. God isn't coming and God isn't going. He is. And if you are coming and you are going and you want some stability, reach out to the one who isn't coming and isn't going. And then he, then he proceeds to the text uh, that Dr. Sanders read earlier. In fact, compared to all creation, God is the only one who is a, a, a nuke stands, a standing now, not a flowing now. He says, of old you founded the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment or be put off like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be changed. Very important here. There are things in the world that are more or less changing. The heavenly bodies haven't changed terribly. Like... Popular music, dress styles uh, might have changed, even, even interior design and other things have changed since in your lifetime, but the phases of the moon, you know, nobody says, you know, when I was a kid, you should have seen the phases of the moon then. <laughs> Kids are like, you know, but grandpa, the phases of the moon are just like that now. Just like when you come to, when you get up off of earth and get up there into the heavens, the heavens seem to be the more enduring, consistent, how shall I say, less mutable things. But even they, he says, will wear out. And then he says that God will change them. Even those things that are the most stable and the most enduring are not absolutely immutable. They come, they go, they were born, and they also will meet their end at God's appointed time. And then he says with an adversative, but you are the same, and your years do not come to an end. It's an interesting statement. I, I know some of you seminary students might, might sympathize with this. When you're learning in Hebrew and in Greek, uh, you're, you're doing your flashcards, and there's a word you come to, and the word is translated, he, she, it, same. He, she, it, same. And it's the same word. And I think there's a connotation of this here, that unlike the things that change, even things changed by God, there is God. Let me just, I want to insert a tiny excursus here for just a moment. There is a trend uh, in theology today that says that divine immutability means that God can't be changed by other things, but it doesn't mean that God can't change himself. Karl Barth held this doctrine, that God was able to touch and move himself so as to produce changes intrinsically, so that while it, what immutability really means, we're told, is that other things can't change God at their will, but that God can change God if God wills. What's interesting here is the contrast between verses 26 and 27 is actually between 26C, things changed by God, and then 27A, God. In other words, what isn't among the things changed by God? God isn't among the things changed by God. He is the same. I think the reference, though, to same might be... There might be slight connotations. I just speculate here a bit. It could... Some might render it, but you are he. You are he, which could have perhaps conceptual reverberations of you are the I am. You are the I am that I am. You are the... Septuagint translates it, ha-on. You are the he is... You are the ising one, not the becoming going ones. That's God. So, who does he appeal to? In the midst of his days, when he feels that he's about to be swept away by the tide of time, he appeals to God. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. And what kind of dwelling place is he? He is not of time. Listen, if you want something stable, if you want something that won't come and won't go, if you want something that is, not that was or will be, but rather is and isn't going to fade away, get hold of God himself. Grab on to God as your portion. Grab on to God as your inheritance. Own him as your God and you will have that which does not pass away. So it is for God. But we turn now to our consideration of time what I call a brief journey, verses three to six. If God's years do not come to an end, again, because there not really a first one or a last one, because there aren't even really years, they're just being, the same cannot be said of us. Moses challenges us in verses three to six with the reality that each human life is astonishingly short, our illusions to the contrary notwithstanding. From the perspective of eternity, your entire life is an insignificant moment. In fact, in verse 3, we hear an echo of Genesis 3.19. In Genesis 3.19, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Our text says, You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. By the way, this isn't just merely the law of entropy. Things break down. Do you hear people say, uh, Sometimes you hear this at funerals, People say, You know, death's just a part of life. Laughter Laughter is the right answer. That's stupid. I mean that. It's exactly not that. It's the end of life. Death is a dep- death is not the way things ought to be. Death is cursed. Death is the result of sin. Death is the wages of sin. It's not just things break down. God says, "Return, O children of men, to dust. Your years are cut short by God." In judgment, Charles Spurgeon says, The frailty of man is thus forcibly set forth. God creates him out of dust, and back to dust he goes at the word of his creator. God resolves and man dissolves. A word created, a word destroys. In verse 4, he colorfully amplifies this. He says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. To God, the world isn't old. To God, the pantheon with its beautiful dome was built earlier this morning, so to speak. Uh, again, obviously, God is not measuring time or measured by time, but he's, his regard of time is not like our regard of time. A thousand years is like something that just occurred or just passed. Of course, with God, there's no past or future, but Moses probably speaks this way because to us, the moments that are behind us seem to us much shorter than the ones that are to come. If you want to measure the length of your life, do not think about the days you anticipate ahead, think about the days that have passed. How long has your life been so far? I imagine there are some hoary heads among us. I hope to be a hoary head. I've got a bald head and a few grays will be fine with me. Uh, but there are some who might say, my life is, I remember I was a youth just yesterday and now I'm in my 80s or my 90s. Life is, life is a vapor. Life is brief. To God, the world is not old, but you need to take this to heart, Uh, even your life, which seems so long ago, but it's just a memory. You might think of it by way of analogy, when you anticipate a vacation, for instance, and you plan a, a week, the week seems infinitely long in the planning phase. When you're thinking about what you're going to do, and planning, 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 it seems like the week is going to last forever. And then it's Saturday, and you're driving home, and it feels like the week was the blink of an eye. In fact, memory tends to compress our perception of time downward. It flattens it out. It makes it feel to us shorter. The week behind you feels shorter to you than the anticipation of the week ahead of you. Dr. Sanders' lecture feels shorter to you now than the one you're currently listening to. (laughs) I'm not going to say it's because it was more interesting. It might have been. That might be the reason. But nevertheless, your memory, it's like this. You need to measure your life this way. Your life is that brief. So then he says, it's like a watch in the night. It's like a watch in the night. Um, a watch in the night is three or four hours. You know how it is. You lay your head on your pillow. You, bl- you blink your eyes, you open them, and your clock says 3.30 a.m. And You think to yourself, but I just laid down. I just got to sleep. A blink of an eye and hours have gone by. That's what your life is like. It's hastening by this way. He then changes the analogy. You swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. This is a fascinating imagery. Time is bearing all of its sons away. And it's taking us away in a, in a torrent. As we cascade to the end in which we give an account of ourselves time does take us away and it takes us away rapidly and it's a flood that is sent from God a flood that is sent to hasten us on and carry us away he says you have swept them away like a flood but then listen to verse five in fact I should say something like this your life is like a flash flood you've been living in a flash flood since your conception listen to what natural man does though verse five you swept them away like a flood they fall asleep Your life is a flash flood carrying you out to the judgment seat of of God and you need to wake up. And what does natural man do? He's sleeping through the flash flood. I don't know if you've ever seen those videos online. I'm sure you have uh, where someone's in an office building and then a flash flood comes around. and They're taking a, a video on their phone and they just watch all the cars in the parking lot just get picked up and carried away right there in the middle of the work day. Listen. That's your life. Your life is being carried along at a rip-roaring speed, hastening on to the day in which you will give an account of yourself, and that day in which you will stand before your maker is but a blink of an eye away from this moment now. That's how we should think about time. Then he changes the imagery yet again, and he says, in the morning they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. Almost as soon as it's born, so to speak, pokes its little green head out of the ground, it's already on its way to its end. Charles Spurgeon says this about grass. He says, Blooming with abounding beauty, till the meadows are all bespent with gems, the grass has a golden hour, even as man in his youth has a heyday and a flowery glory. The scythe ends the blossoming of field flowers and the dew at night weeps their fall here is the history of grass sown grown blown mown gone once more the history of grass sown, grown, blown, moaned, gone. And Spurgeon goes on, And the history of man is not much more. Natural decay would put an end to both of us in grass in due time. Few, however, are left to experience the full result of age, for death comes with his scythe and removes our life in the midst of its verdure. How great a change in how short a time. The morning saw the blooming and the evening sees the withering. Matthew, Henry, says, that betwixt a minute and a million years there is some proportion, but betwixt time and eternity there is none. The long lives of the patriarchs were as nothing to God, not so much as the life of a child that is born and dies the same day is to theirs. We stand before the eternal one and our life is but the blink of an eye, and we need to measure our life by the standard of eternity. And if we do that, you will feel the shortness of this life. A third consideration, if we haven't seen this already, that this is a hard journey, a hard journey. It's not, sometimes you go to an amusement park and you get on a roller coaster and it's short, but it's fun. This is short and full of trouble, in fact. This is not, he's not, a, he's not a killjoy. He's not saying that there aren't good things in the world. he's not that we don't receive everything as a good gift from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to turning, that we're somehow ingrateful. But life is short, and life is full of pain and difficulty. Verse 7, he says, We have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we've been dismayed. Lest we think that this hastening unto death is merely the result of, of our natural created nature, the psalmist stresses that our mortal condition is in fact a judgment executed upon us by God himself. The one who is immortality, as we've heard this morning, and who would give us a participation in created mode of immortality has in fact consigned us to mortality as a result of the sin of our first parents. We have sinned against him so as to provoke his wrath. Now, it's true that God does not change, but God does change his dealings with people. God smiles upon his creation, as it were, and says, it is very good, and in a short while, man corrupts himself and his way upon the earth, and God's favor, his face shining upon them, becomes, in the words of Amos 9.4, eyes set for evil. That the showings of God's goodness can look like mercy, they can also look like wrath. In fact, it's because of God's love for his holiness that he shows mercy, and it's because of the same love for the same holiness that he shows wrath. And these people, born sons and daughters of Adam and in Adam, are under his wrath. When Adam fell, God's way toward mankind generally was turned to one of hostility and righteous opposition. Now, in all likelihood, Moses is thinking about the various sins of the children of Israel during the time of uh, the the sojourn in the wilderness, worshipping the golden calf, refusal to enter the promised land, complaining repeatedly about food, and many died in the wilderness by way of divine retribution. By your wrath, we have been dismayed, he says. In fact, the entire population of those over the age of 20, including Moses himself, died in the wilderness, excepting Joshua and Caleb, uh, and did not go into the promised land. Their days were short and they were under the heavy hand of God's judgment. In Psalm 130, verse 3, the psalmist there asks a potent question. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? Verse 8 of our text says, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Just a quick quick word about this. It's not like God is passing time and he might eventually forget about it, you know, out of sight, out of mind. He says, you've placed our iniquities in your presence. Remember, this is the presence of the eternal one. There's no possibility that times will change and God will, as it were, forget your sins. In fact, he says are secret sins in the light of your presence. It's not just the empirically known sins. It's even the hidden faults that you yourself might be unaware of or the things you think others aren't aware of. These stand naked before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, who is the eternal God. In other words, there's no chance that he's going to forget because he's not passing through time. And yet, and yet, he goes on a little further. I'll get to the end yet in a moment, don't worry. Go a little further. He says, "For our days have declined in your fury, and our years have fin- and, our, and we have finished our years like a sigh." Comes in vigorous, goes out with a whimper. Thomas Watson says, "We come into the world with a cry, we go out of it with a groan." then in verse 10, again, the brevity of life is brought out. Moses himself lived to 120 years, but he says that man might now live to 70 or maybe 80. 80 is going to be the new 120. That's what he's saying. In other words, in order to cut short the sinning, God's cutting short the living. He's trimming years off the life to trim time off the sinning that men do. This is a short time span compared to Methuselah, who lived to 969 years. And yet from the divine perspective, Methuselah living to 969 years and a child still born no difference. Each stands, as it were, before his maker. He says a little further, verse 10, yet their pride is labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. When are you planning to die? I hope your answer is soon, barring the Lord's return. Soon! In fact, you will soon fly away, and and listen, and I take this to heart, and you will then soon after that be forgotten, at least in the memories of men. You might think to yourself, they won't forget me. They will forget you. They will forget you. They will forget me. Men try to leave a little something of themselves behind, building, accomplishing great feats, writing great books, even, even names on books. What do you really know about William Shakespeare? I mean, beside the writing. Um, The man, I mean. My uh, great-great-great-grandfather was from Bohemia. My great-grandfather came over on a boat in 1867. My great-grandfather, to to give a new life to his family, my great-grandfather was, if I understand it correctly, was kicked in the head by a horse in Nebraska in 1877 and died. My, that was my great-great-grandfather. My great-grandfather then rushed into Oklahoma in 1889 when they opened the land. Really interesting. What do I know about them? Jan Dolezal, from the old country. John Dolezal, the younger. Henry, my grandfather, I knew him. But even his dad. My own dad didn't know his own grandfather. He was dead before my dad was born. What do I know about him? Bohemian, immigrated for a better life, kicked in the head by a horse 10 years later. He might have, I don't know if he was a good man or a bad man. I don't know whether he loved the Lord or didn't love the Lord. And I'm, I'm his offspring. and not too far removed. They will forget you. Do you know the names of your great-great-great-grandparents? And if you do, because some of you went onto that free access to Ancestry.com sample, <laughs> uh, what do you know about them? I mean, the man, the woman. Listen, God knows you, and God won't forget you, but time will. And as we try to build little empires in time, time sweeps our empires away, and time sweeps the memory of us away. And, uh, by the way, are you discouraged yet? You should be a little discouraged by this. this is the, you're, you're meant to be moved by this. And then he says a little further. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? In fact, who can really understand what it is to be under divine judgment? Spurgeon illuminates it this way. Good men dread wrath beyond conception, but they never ascribe too much terror to it. Bad men are dreadfully convulsed when they awake to the sense of it. He means God's wrath. But their horror is not greater than it had need be. For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Holy Scripture, when it depicts God's wrath against sin, never uses an hyperbole. Never uses a hyperbole. It would be impossible to exaggerate it. Whatever feelings of pious awe and holy trembling may move the tender heart, it is never too much moved. Apart from other considerations, the great truth of the divine anger, when most powerfully felt, never impresses the mind with a solemnity and excess of the legitimate result of such a contemplation. You cannot exaggerate what it means to be one who stands offending a holy God who is infinite and boundless in goodness and being and perfection. You have sinned and I have sinned against boundless perfection. Subjectively, I can't produce anything infinite, but objectively my sin is against the one who is boundless goodness itself. I can't possibly measure adequately the wrath that I'm under we'd have to comprehend the very infinitude of God's goodness to understand his wrath against sin. Good news, the Psalm does not end here. I wanna take us to a final consideration, the way back home, and by the way back home, I mean the way back to our eternal dwelling, the dwelling through all generations, the one that is everlasting to everlasting. Time is sweeping me away to judgment, it's carrying me away. How can I get a safety, a refuge that will endure? It's a good question. Verse 12 strikes a hopeful note. David There the psalmist says, Moses says, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Listen, that's hopeful because it's possible to live wisely and to live well in the midst of this dire situation. Yes, time is hastening by and life is short, but you don't have to be a fool. You can, in fact, live wisely with the short time you've been given. In fact, you can live now in a way that gives you an inheritance that is eternal. You can, for a little while, live in such a way that you lay hold of eternity itself. A hopeful note. Give us a heart of wisdom. To number our days. It might seem like an odd request. I mean, hasn't he just numbered his days? Just a couple of verses earlier, he says... Man lives 70 years, and if by strength, maybe 80, and so hasn't he already numbered his years? But there's a difference between numbering your years and taking account of your years. To count your years is one thing, to take account of your years is a different thing altogether. In fact, Calvin calls it shameful stupidity that we fail to take the brevity of life to heart. He says this a bit more lengthy. It is surely a monstrous thing that men can measure all distances without themselves or outside themselves, that they, may, that they know how many feet the moon is distant from the center of the earth, what space there is between the different planets, and in short, they can measure all the dimensions of both heaven and earth, and yet they cannot number three score and ten in their own case. That you can measure the cosmos, but not take an adequate measure of the short life given to you, That's the shameful stupidity of men, and that's precisely what the psalmist is praying for a reversal of. Give me a heart of wisdom that I might number my days, that I might take account of this time, to number them soberly. Jesus speaks of a man who sought to be rich in this life, and he imagined that he had many years of pleasure ahead. He was, in fact, going to tear down his barns and build bigger barns, sure that he would live a long life and take his ease, the answer, you fool! This very night, your life is required of you. When I went to the in the financial planner uh, some years ago, uh, he asked me um, how long I plan to live. <laughs> I said, "Well, Doc," I and I said, "I said, well, Doc, I'm a Calvinist," and I started with that. And or, uh, my sir, I'm a Calvinist, and he said, "He said, I'm a Calvinist too." He said, I'm not saying how long you will live. How long do you want the money to last, you know? um, So you pick a... It's a weird thing to pick a number. I plan to live to maybe this very night my life's required of me. He said, fine, then we have a plan for that, too, and you've got to trust, and everyone can... You know, we've we've got that... The insurance guys, they've got that covered, um, even if today's the day. Um, How long... I don't know, but I want to live them well, and I want to live them wisely, and I want to live now in time in light of eternity. I want to live in such a way that I can have as my inheritance the one who is not of time. That's the wisdom that I need. Listen, I'm going to need help with that, and so are you. Because I just don't have it in me to furnish this wisdom to live well in the midst of these cascading days, in the midst of this torrent of life, Listen to this. The psalmist doesn't look to himself either. Verse thirteen, "Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants." It's such—it's a a fascinating text. Um, He uses the word "return" again. Verse three, God says, "Return, O children of dust." Here, the psalmist says, "O Lord, you return." It's an interesting request. God is actually the one from whom every good and perfect gift comes down, the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to turning, James 1.17. But here he says to the one who doesn't turn, return to me. In fact, he even uses the word for repentance or relenting, or relenting, be sorry or relent. In other words, um, remove your heavy hand from us. Relent, O oh Lord. Take this curse from off of me. Reconcile me. Can I translate a little bit to the earlier text? Bring me home. Let me come back in the house. Let me dwell with you. Let me enjoy the light of your countenance. Not trying to build a kingdom in this earth that is passing away, but to build my life in fellowship and communion with you who doesn't pass away. He prays for God to return to him, to satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Listen. God has, in fact, answered the prayer of Moses already and concretely. God has returned to men in a most extraordinary way. In fact, the very God of eternity, the one whose name in Isaiah 9-6 is everlasting or eternal, is in fact the one who in the same verse is called the Son who would be born to us. The everlasting one himself would be born to us. And he would take our nature, which is of time, into union with his person. And that hypostatic union that Dr. Sanders spoke about earlier, in that union, eternity has returned to time and brought time near to itself in the person of Christ Jesus. There's an an amazing sequence of of verses in Isaiah 63 and down to 64.1. I only mentioned a few We're told in Isaiah 63.10 that after Israel had rebelled that God turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. A little later on, Isaiah prays to God and says, return for the sake of your servants. And then he says in Isaiah 64.1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Then we come to the baptism of Jesus, and Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism, and he says to John the Baptist, "Permit it, for at this time it's it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." And then it says that heaven was opened, and the Spirit of God, alighting in the form of a dove, came down upon Christ, and the voice came from heaven that said, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased." Heaven came down to earth in the person of Christ. Time was reconciled to the eternal creator in the person of Christ Jesus and it will go well for all of those that attach themselves in faith to Christ Jesus. Get hold of Christ and you will have God for your eternal dwelling place. The eternal one has returned. The sojourning and the wandering and the being cast about in this life, it's but for a moment, but listen, you can be borne up by the everlasting arms right now. That language comes from Deuteronomy 33, where, in fact, has striking similarities to our psalm, those words of Moses there, in which he says that we are carried even now by everlasting arms. Listen, eternity can fortify you for time today. That's the thing about it. God's eternity isn't coming, it isn't going. If you need it, it's there, and you need it. You need it. You need him for reconciliation. You need him for daily strength. You need him for your daily bread. You need him for life, breath, listen to this, and all things. And because he's timeless and because he's eternal, he never passes away. He gives himself to us in the person of his son. Listen to this very glad response. Make us glad in the morning. According to the days you've afflicted us and the years we've seen evil, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. I love the psalm in, verse, uh, in Psalm 17, verse 15, uh, when David says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Listen. You want to build a home that lasts, build it with God because he is the home that lasts. If you want to build a home with God, then you need to lay hold of the one that God has sent forth, his own eternal son, eternally begotten before all worlds, who came forth in the fullness of time to bring us into the enjoyment and to give us a taste of eternal life itself. A final exit statement from the psalmist, verse 17 Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. It's a fascinating way to end the psalm because it begins with the solemnity of you and and just in the sublime contemplation. You have been our dwelling places from all generations. You who are from everlasting to everlasting. You who are God... And you don't derive it from the world. The world derives from you. You do not derive from the world. And now we come to the end of the psalm. And he's saying, establish the work of our hands. And it feels like we've gone from the heavens down here to the daily grind. But, but watch what's... Look what's happened to the daily grind now. The daily grind is now borne up by eternity itself. The work of this life and the work of today is in fact infused with a quality and a glory that is enduring if it is done in and by and in faith with and in righteous reconciliation with the eternal God himself. Christ said that we should lay up treasures where rust and moth don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal, and you should lay them up starting now if you haven't already. 1 Corinthians 15.58, Paul encourages us with these words, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, listen, is not in vain in the Lord. That today counts forever, and this can be borne up and strengthened by the eternal one himself, if it is work that is done in the Lord. Finally, John, in Revelation 14, 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Does life feel pointless? Time bears all of its sons away. God is not one of its sons. He's its Father. The Father of lights from whom every good and perfect gift comes down the one who created time, the one who rules time, but the one who isn't governed by time, the one who isn't running out of time, the one who isn't coming, the one who isn't going, the one who is. If you want stability in the midst of shiftiness and of tumult, get hold of this one and he will be your dwelling place, not pie in the sky to come, right now and today because of what he's done for us in his own son. Let's go to him in gratitude for that. Our God in heaven, we thank you that you did send forth your son, indeed the very son of your love, begotten from before all worlds, the one who is eternally at your side. We thank you that eternity has broken into time and has reconciled time to itself in the very personal work of your son, crucified and raised. We bless you for him. Lord, we do bless you and magnify you for your eternality, for your exaltation above all time. And we thank you, Lord, that you're not simply out there, but that you even dwell in us now by your spirit and that you've given us a foretaste of the glory to come uh, by, show, by pouring forth your spirit into our hearts and by uniting us to your son, your very eternal son. Lord, we do bless you and we thank you for this great salvation that is ours, even from you, our eternal God.